Welcome to the Garage Podcast, presented to you by the Young Adults Group at Salem First Baptist Church. Thanks for tuning in to hear this week's message from Pastor Tyler Hankey. All right, friends, welcome to another episode of The Garage. We are starting a new series today out of the book of Daniel, and I'm calling this one Kicking It in Babylon. So what spurred this on? Um, I was looking at our current culture. I was looking at our current political climate. I was looking at, honestly, the different things happening in Israel. And when things like this happen, anytime Israel's got a skirmish, anytime Israel is at war, anytime there's big events or moments happening in the Middle East, inevitably our minds go apocalyptic. There's already rumors around about the end of the world. There's rumors about World War III. There's rumors about the Antichrist and about um, wars and rumors of wars. And so instead of going to the let's all freak out type of uh, rhetoric, I really wanted to just go back to the source and let's calm each other down. Let's, let's calm our friends down, but let's ask serious questions. Are the things that are happening in the Middle East and in our country pointing to end times realities. And, and before I answer any of those questions with a simplistic answer, let's just, let's jump into this series and ask ourselves the question, can we learn anything from Daniel that can apply to our current situation? And so a, a little bit of background on the book of Daniel and then on, on the ideas that come from the book of Daniel before we jump into the immediate text. Uh, here's how the book of Daniel is broken up. There's essentially really two books in one. If you read the book of Daniel, the first six chapters concern a very practical side of of Daniel. How do I live a God-honoring life in a really dark environment? And the second half of the book of Daniel has to do with the prophetic nature of the book, asking questions of what's going to happen in the future from Daniel's perspective. what, What does the end of the world look like? What are certain big players, either individuals or countries, that will be involved in the end times? All of those are asked and answered in the second half of Daniel. And so in this series, you're going to get two massive themes. Number one, which will generally start today, how do I live in a dark environment, a life that honors God? How do I stay sane? How do I stay God-honoring in an environment that is very much against everything that I think and believe? And the second half of the series has to do with what does the end of the world look like? And can we ask those questions without sounding and looking like crazy people? And the answer is absolutely. And so I wanted to start today kicking it in Babylon, going over first a, a bit of the background of this book. So here's what... Uh, Here's what Daniel's look like Daniel's life looks like. Sorry if I could talk today. Here's what his life looks like before the book actually starts. So Israel has already gone through a civil war. It split the nation into two. The northern half of Israel maintains the name Israel and the southern part takes the name Judah. This civil war happens hundreds of years before the events of this book, but The north is invaded by the Assyrian army. They're devastated. The Jews of that region are scattered throughout the known world. And the southern half maintains independence for a number of years when, from the east, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire invade and absolutely destroy the nation. Now, Nebuchadnezzar goes into Israel three different times. This is the first where he invades during the reign of King Jehoiakim, and he He is absolutely routed. And Israel is effectively destroyed, but not permanently deleted. But in this first invasion, 
Nebuchadnezzar goes in and he tells his right-hand man, I want you to capture good-looking men from noble families, and you're going to pull them back to Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. And so he invades, and he's actually not even king yet. His father is king of Babylon, but he dies. And so Nebuchadnezzar, during this military invasion, gets word, your father has died. You need to return home. So he does. And a number of noblemen are taken back to Babylon. And, and we'll learn why that's important here in a second. And so the, the book begins, Daniel begins with a recognition that Israel has been destroyed. And Daniel and his friends and a, a number of other young men have been taken captive. Here's how the book begins. And then I'll, I'll kind of lay out our main questions for the text. Verse 1 starts... Daniel chapter one, in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These Nebuchadnezzar carried off to the temple of his God, that is Marduk, in Babylonia, to put in the treasure house of his God. So here's Here's the statement that is made right from the beginning. So Nebuchadnezzar decimates the nation under the direction, not that he was getting direction, but this is happening under the direction of God, which shows you, though it's a scary moment for those in the story, it shows you any evil ruler ultimately is under the sovereign direction of God. And, and that you can take comfort in that because there's no ruler on the world stage right now that is outside the plan and purposes of God. God's sovereign over all of it. And so God is overseeing the destruction of his people, and you'll see why here in, in a bit. You'll see how this all plays out. But Nebuchadnezzar comes in, and he takes the treasure troves of God from the temple back to his temple. So here's the statement that he's making. I'm in control. I'm serving my gods, my demon gods, and I'm gonna take all of the valuables from the, from the temple of God in Jerusalem to my temple. And, and so this story opens by basically Nebuchadnezzar saying, my God's better than the God of the Jews. And it seems for a time that he's correct, and so the Jews have been absolutely devastated. And so it begins with this attempt that he's got to reorder the Jewish people, and here's what I mean by that. It says in verse three, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians, and the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years so that they could enter the king's service. You might be wondering how in the world this applies to you at all, and, and trust me, I'm getting there, but let's lay out the story so here's what's really, really sad. You've grown up in Judah as a wealthy, noble individual. Like your, your family's from the noble bloodline. Your future is written for you. You know that you are going to get the most well-off, the prettiest of women to marry. You're gonna have children with this woman and you will grow up in a culture that to the best of your ability honors the existing culture and honors God. His future was known but then Nebuchadnezzar invades and everything changes. 
And when the invasion begins, you are suddenly captured. There's a bunch of your, your friends and your family that are left. And, and soldiers come up and they grab you. And, and this was a scary moment, but I almost have to laugh because the king says, go grab the handsome ones. And so in the moment, you're almost praying, like, please find me ugly, please find me ugly. But he comes up and he grabs the handsome nobleman. Why would he do this? Let, let's just ask a cultural question. Why does Nebuchadnezzar want to go find the handsome nobleman of Israel? Well, let's imagine that you're a dictator and you've invaded a nation. You've got three options when it comes to subduing these people. Option one is you murder everyone. Like, let's just get simple. If you wanna rule a bunch of nations and you don't want anyone to fight you, murder them, just kill them all. That's option one. Option two is you go in and you turn them all into slaves and you rule them with violence and, and servitude. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't wanna do that. His empire is too big. You don't wanna make everyone slaves by violence. That means everyone around you hates you. So what he does is the smartest play. Option three is you take the influencers and you turn them to your side. He's effectively going to wine and dine these men. And so he finds the best looking guys, the smartest guys, the most influential men, because here's his thought. If I can turn the hearts and minds of the noblemen of Judah to my cause, I win. I automatically win. It would be like if someone came to our country and they hired all of the influencers on TikTok, on Instagram, and, and they said, we will pay you a massive amount of money. You will gain everything you need from us we just need you to share our message. And so effectively what he's about to do is he is going to culturally and politically reprogram these men so that he can win the hearts and minds of everybody else. It's actually quite brilliant. And so he takes these guys and, and it goes so far as to changing their very names. So you've got four men that are in this little pod and so there's a bunch of young men that have been kidnapped, but among them, it says that there was Daniel and his three buddies. It says there was Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So let's go over their names because the meaning is so important because the name has changed. Daniel means God has judged. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael means who is what God is, meaning God is just different. He's, he's better, he's unique. Azariah means Yahweh has helped me. All of their names are changed. To Daniel, the name was given Belteshazzar, which means Baal protect the king. So his name went from God has judged, meaning God is in control and has the right to judge, and his name is changed to demon protect the king. Absolutely disgusting name. And then Hananiah becomes a name you might be familiar with. These three friends become Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Oddly enough, their Babylonian names are more known than their Jewish names, which is sad to me. But Shadrach means the command of Aku, which is the god of the moon. Meshach means I am despised. Like, like imagine if someone walked up to you and said, what's your name? You're like, my name's Bill. And someone's like, no, it's not. Your name is I'm disgusting. Again, absolutely tragic. And then Abednego goes from Yahweh has helped me to, Abednego means servant of Nebo, which means the God of wisdom. 
What was their culture doing? They were stripping these boys of everything that made them Jewish, everything that made them God-honoring. So he is effectively religiously and politically reprogramming these guys. And it's unbelievably sad what he begins doing. And the very first command that these, three, these four men are given, and they become good friends, the very first command they're given is, come sit at my table and eat my food and drink my wine. N not a half bad command, yes? Like, let's just think about this. Like, you, I know that you know the story, but put yourself in the story for a minute. You're in a new nation. Your parents are dead. Your best friends are either dead or with you in servitude. And the king has said, look, I want you to sit down with me. Like, they're with Nebuchadnezzar. And they're, they're around a bunch of other individuals that are all in training. This is an educational center. And so you sit down, and they're like, look, we want you, and this is the, the evil individuals talking. They're like, we want you to eat the best steak we have to offer, the best pork chops we have to offer, the best pulled pork sandwiches we have, and we want you to drink the best wine from our vineyards. Knock yourself out. And everyone at the table agrees, except for Daniel and his three friends. And I'll get to why that's unbelievably significant here in a second. But again, I wanna, I wanna bring you into the story. Why should this matter to you? Where do you find yourself in this story? Well, friends, you need to view Babylon not as a city, though it is a city, it's a kingdom, it's a region, but Babylon more than that is a demonic spirit. Babylon is mentioned, it's personified as this evil woman in the book of Revelation. See, Babylon is everything that is anti-God. When you hear Babylon, that's what I want you to think. Babylon is everything that is anti-God. It hates Yahweh, it hates the law of God, it hates the person of God, and it hates the people of God. And it will do anything in its power to ruin the plans and purposes of God and hurt the people of God. And Babylon really needs to be given some respect in, in some way. It's brilliant. The spirit of Babylon is brilliant. It's slow moving and it's a teacher. And I would argue the spirit and power of Babylon is at work in the United States. Really, really in many Western cultures, but specifically in our country. Why should this story matter to you? Because you are living in Babylon. That's my argument today. You are living in Babylon and you need to learn how to endure it because if you don't, the sweetness of it, the, the smell of it, the, the, the teachings, the words, the songs of it will lure you in and they'll put you to sleep and make you a slave. Look at the similarities in, in our two nations. When you look at Babylon and you look at America, the similarities should shock you. It's a broken government that doesn't submit to God with, with evil rulers that we can't trust. Sound familiar? Absolutely. The vast majority of the nation does not submit to God, both in Babylon and in America. The church attendance rate of millennials, my generation, is in the mid-teens. We're at like 16%. The church attendance rate of Gen Z, that is you, the, the average young adult, is 9%. So even though there's a number of Christians, even though our nation was founded on Judeo-Christian beliefs, that is true, we are no longer a Christian nation with a massive amount of laws on the books that go against our faith. 
and with the vast majority of the new generation wanting nothing to do with faith, you are continuing to see a darker and darker nation arise. And you will begin, if you're not careful, to feel more and more and more lonely. And your faith is going to get harder and harder to practice. Here's another similarity. Daniel is tempted by a lavish culture of self-indulgence. Does that not sound like America? Dress however you want, sleep with whoever you want, eat whatever you want, buy whatever you want. That is our nation. And that is Babylon. Just sit and drink in the lavishness and excess of the world. That's Babylon's mantra. The educational space was dominated by witchcraft, spirits, and depraved logic. This is a nation that slaughters babies for political and economic gain. Like, man, I really want this business transaction to work out, so let's go sacrifice one of our kids to bail. No, and, and you're like, we, we don't sacrifice kids to bail. Yes, we do. We murder hundreds of thousands of babies a year in the name of choice and convenience. Friends, if God doesn't do something to punish America, he needs to go apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah because we have blood on our hands. We have a culture of lavishness. We are dominated by witchcraft, spirits, and depraved logic. And all the while, both Daniel and you and me are sitting here with this promise that God is one day going to return. Are we not similar? I would argue we are almost the same nation. And so we need to, we need to sit here and ask ourselves the question, how in the world do I survive? How do I last in Babylon? How do I thrive in Babylon? What is my responsibilities in Babylon? And so here is the problem Daniel faces, and then I'll, I'll walk you through what your problems might look like in, in comparison. Daniel is told by the leading official, you need to eat the food and drink the wine of the king. Now on the surface, that doesn't sound bad. Like if there was an enemy of the United States that was like, hey, come sit at my table and eat steak and drink wine, that's a fairly tempting offer. But Daniel says, no, to do that would defile me. What's he talking about? You see, Daniel has decided from the very beginning, you will not strip me of my faith and you will not strip me of my cultural identity. I am a Jewish man and you will do nothing to hinder that. You see, he is aware of the cultural and, and religious limits that are on him from the law of Moses. If you look at Exodus 34, 15, it says, don't eat food sacrificed to idols. If you look at Deuteronomy 14, it says, don't eat pig, rabbit, camel, eagle, vulture, bat, insects. It goes through a giant list of what he's not allowed to eat. Now, does the book of Daniel tell us what Daniel was offered? No. All it says is he was offered meat and wine from the king's table. And he says, no, I'm not gonna do it. Now, what does this mean? It means, again, he's decided from the very beginning, you're not stripping me of who I am. So for you, what, what does this look like? Here's what I wanna frame for you. I wanna frame for you three principles that Daniel lives by that you need to live by if you're gonna survive in this culture. Three principles he lives by that you too can live by. Here's principle number one. Bad situations do not give you permission to ignore or disobey God. Let me say it again. Bad situations do not give you permission to ignore 
or disobey God. Daniel has every right to be angry, to be depressed, to be defeated, to reject God. This was a man that knew his future. He, he knew his job. He probably knew his wife. He, he knew what was gonna happen. Like his future was laid out for him, but he became a slave of the Babylonian empire. And Josephus, the historian says, commonly Nebuchadnezzar would castrate his servants. And so Daniel is now in a school of demonic activity, being offered things that would defile his body. He was probably castrated, so he's got no future, no, no future wife, no family, nothing to look forward to. His king is imprisoned, his nation is dead, his temple is destroyed. Why wouldn't he give up? Now, your story is obviously not exactly the same. However, you run into bad situations. It's true, and I don't mean to diminish any of those simply because they're not like Daniel. You could have grown up in an awful home. You could have had parents that made fun of you or hurt you. You could have had parents that mocked your faith if you became a Christian and they didn't. Or you could have had Christians that were so fundamentalist, they were all rule-based and there was no grace, no forgiveness, and yet they just you know, emotionally and verbally beat you with the ideas of God. And so you look at that and you're like, my situation is awful. And you can start to say to yourself, look, I don't, even, I don't wanna honor God anymore because here's the danger. Obedience to the Lord often, often, maybe even the majority of the time will lead you into situations where you're lonely and loneliness can be devastating to faith. Please don't beat yourself up. This happens to the best of us. It has happened to me. Where you decide, this is the kind of man I wanna be, or you're like, this is the kind of woman I wanna be, and you make decisions, and then you discover, wow, there's no one standing around me anymore. I mean, look at Daniel. He was brought into captivity with probably dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of other young, handsome men, and all of them sit at the table and start partaking in the meat and wine. It was only four guys, Daniel included, that decided to say, no, we're not gonna do this. And friends, this can happen to you in a variety of situations. You, you can, as a, as a young man, as a young woman, you can enter the college scene and you can say to yourself, you know what, I'm, I'm fine with my current relational status, I'm fine being single, but then month after month after year after year goes by, you could even have graduated and you're like, I'm not dating anyone and I'm frustrated. I felt like I honored God with my body. I honored him with my, with my words, with my actions. I, you know, I went to church, I went to Bible study and the relationship thing never happened for me, so screw it. And you get lonely and you get tired and you get defeated. And the idea of lust and porn, which was almost never on your mind, actually becomes an option. And you're like, look, if I'm not gonna receive satisfaction from a real relationship, I might as well have one with a fake relationship. And we give in something we almost never thought that we would do. Or money starts to not work out for you. And again, you honored God with your job. You might've even had a practice of tithing, but then money doesn't work out and debt's piling up and you start getting angry. And so you're like, screw it, I'm just not gonna tithe. If God's not gonna do anything on his end, why would I do something on mine? And so financially, when things don't work out, it can create a bad situation and we can start to give ourselves permission to sin. Or maybe God's not clear in his vision for you. 
Like it, it seems like other people have the, the right major and they've got a promised job for them after graduation and you don't. And you, you get mad and so you stop praying. You're like, you know what? If God's not gonna speak to me, why would I speak to him? Or you start developing bad friendships, individuals you know are not healthy, but you stay with them and, and you honestly can't even admit why other than you just don't wanna be physically alone. So you will allow yourself to become distant from God if it means you get to stay close to other human beings, even if they're disobeying God. But guys, when you look at scripture, God's clear. He has already let you know what he feels about what he loves and what he hates. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. My commandments on family and on marriage and on children, on hard work, on honesty, on personal sacrifice, on life. Ladies, can I speak to you for a second? If you decide in this culture that you wanna be a woman that dresses modestly, if you wanna protect your body from the eyes of other individuals, if you wanna find a God-honoring man and submit to him and have babies with him, in this culture, you're the weird one. If you, if you like the idea of marriage at all, man or woman, you're the weird one in this culture. If you wanna find a husband and say, you know what, I'm going to submit to your leadership as God gives it to you, you're the weird one. And I promise you, at certain moments in this life, you will be the lonely one. Even if you do have close friendships, there will be moments as you decide to be obedient to the Lord where you will be lonely. Gentlemen, can I talk to you? What if you decide that you wanna get a job and here's the kicker, hold a job, and then upon getting your paycheck, you give the lion's share of your paycheck to someone else, meaning wife and children. You're the weird one. That you would live a life of personal sacrifice for the benefit of someone else, you're the weird one. And I promise you, in this life, you will be lonely. Or if you're going to work somewhere and you got a bunch of fellow employees and they're all short in the time clock, they're, they're recording on their notes that they stayed to a certain time because there's no cameras, there's no one to check on it. And so they tell you, hey, just clock out early, don't worry about it, and then on the time card, just say that you were here the whole time. No one's gonna see it. But you get to decide, are you gonna look at God and say, man, things are really tough right now, so I'm gonna just give myself a pass on this one. Are you gonna be the kind of person that says a bad situation does indeed give me permission to sin? Or are you gonna be the kind of person that says, it doesn't matter where I am. It doesn't matter what's happening to me. I will be the kind of man or woman that decides I'm gonna follow God from the beginning. And that leads you to the next principle. Principle number one was bad situations don't give you permission to ignore or disobey God. Principle two, the best time to prepare for battle is before the fighting, not during it. Can I give you a silly example? Please bear with me, it, it's silly. Imagine it's medieval times and you are indeed at war. And so you're sitting there and at, like the enemy is in front of you. They are mounted on their horses. They're, the infantry is, is lining up on the front. They are in full battle garb. They've got their armor on, they got their sword and they got their shield. And you walk up in your tunic and you're just sitting there shooting the breeze with your buddy next to you and the battle actually begins. And then your opponent runs up at you and you're like, whoa, 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 my man, my man, hold up, hold up. Like, give me a minute. 
And, and then you just like, you kneel down and you're like, hold on, don't worry, I'm gonna fight you, just give me a sec. And then you're, you're putting your leg pieces on, you got your chest plate and you throw that on, you got your shoulder pad blade thing, I don't know what to call it, I haven't put armor on. And you throw that on your shoulder and then you grab your shield and you get your sword and, and then even then you're like, give me a second, I need a, I need a wet stone, I gotta sharpen this thing. I, I don't want a blunt sword going into battle. And then you finally get all your armor on. You're like, all right, now my guy, I'm with you. Let's fight. Now, like I said, that was stupid, yes? Like we can all agree that was one of the dumbest examples I've ever given. However, it is as dumb for you to move into a dating relationship having not decided who you are as it is to go into a battle without armor. As dumb as my example is, I see so many people, and I would even put myself in this category, that sometimes move into unbelievably important situations with no training. Like, let, let me ask you this question, guys. When is a good time to decide you're not going to sleep with your girlfriend? Is it when the dating begins and you define the relationship, or is it when you're sitting there on the couch watching a romantic movie and you're under the, the, the blanket, all of her roommates are gone, your roommates aren't coming, and the lights are dim? Is that a good moment to decide we're not sleeping together? Um, no, because at that moment, you're not thinking with your head. You're thinking with, well, I can't say it because this is being recorded, but you're thinking with something else between your legs. Guys, if we're gonna be men of integrity, if we're gonna protect the minds and the bodies of the women that we date, you need to decide before the dating begins the kind of man that you're gonna be. And ladies, it's the same thing with you. You need to decide what you think of you you need to decide that your body matters before you start dressing yourself in the morning. Because here's the reality. You decide from the very beginning of the day what kind of value statement you're making about yourself. If you want to dress provocatively, knock yourself out. you got freedom in Jesus to wear or not wear whatever you want. And yet every time we go outside, man or woman, we are making a statement. We are deciding in that moment who we are and what actually matters. Friends, here's the key to this principle. Values determine direction. Let me say that again in case you weren't listening. Values determine direction. So you can sit there all day long and tell me what you think matters to you, but then if I look at your actions and they veer off, you're a liar. If you're sitting here and you are overweight and lethargic and you tell me that health and fitness matter to you, you're a liar. You can tell me that's a desire of yours, but it's not a value. And if you tell me that marriage matters to you, it's a value, but then by the way that you dress and the way that you speak and the way that you date flippantly, you are telling me with your actions, marriage doesn't matter to you. Values dictate action. Let, let's, let's take a school example. You get to decide upon going into school if you're gonna be a man or a woman that does or does not cheat. That decision is made the second you walk on school grounds. It is not made in the moment looking at the test that you did not study for. That's not when it's made. And here's, here's how I know this. Because values determine action. Values determine direction. If you are a man or a woman that does not cheat, then you're not gonna hang out with people that do. If you are a man or a woman that does not cheat, you will give yourself ample time to prepare. If you've already decided, look, I'm not gonna cheat, and that means I'm gonna go to bed on time. 
It means I'm gonna wake up early. It means I'm gonna go find a good study partner. It means I'm gonna give myself time this afternoon to actually sit down and go over vocab. And it also means that in the moments where you break down emotionally and you decide in a, in a crazy stressed moment to actually cheat, if you are a man or woman that doesn't cheat and you happen to, you are the same kind of man or woman that will go turn yourself in. Guys, I, I talk to teachers all the time. I talk to professors all the time and they're honestly quite scared because you've got a whole new realm of teaching that we need to figure out, a whole new realm of ethics that we, we haven't even cracked the code on at all. And it's chat GPT. Because you can just go online right now and say, write me an essay about this topic from this perspective. It's gotta be this long, go. And chat GPT does it in two seconds. And, and students aren't dumb, okay? We figured out ways around teachers and their safeguards. And so really the only thing left is to be men or women of honor. At the end of the day, if you really wanna cheat, there's no way your teacher can catch you. There's no way. And so you need to decide what kind of man am I? What kind of woman am I? Will I walk onto my campus and genuinely try my best and learn what I need to learn? And if I take a hit on a grade, I take a hit. If I end up getting a bad grade, I get a bad grade, but I will know at the end of the day that I behaved honorably. Are you that man or woman? Are you the kind of man or woman that values the word of God and the teaching of God and the body of Christ? Because if you are, for the rest of your life, whether you're in here in our group, at our church, or you move to a new city, a new state, or a new country, are you gonna go find a group of people that trust Jesus? Are, are you gonna take church seriously? Are you gonna find a community of believers and not just attend, are you actually gonna plug in? Are you gonna take the metaphors of scripture seriously, that you are the body of Christ and that you might be a mouthpiece, you might be an ear, you might be a hand, you might be a foot, we don't know, but you need to go find a church and plug in. You need to prepare. Daniel says this in, in the story, it says in verse eight, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Guys, he said that before it was commanded of him to eat it. And so he, the story continues and he tells the, um, the commander, he says, will you please give me the opportunity to, to not eat and, and, and test me? Because the commander goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. Look, my job is to make sure you just don't die. I don't need to teach you. I don't need to do anything. I just need to make sure you live. And Daniel says, look, here's, here's a bet I'll make with you. Test me for 10 days. For 10 days, give me vegetables and water. And if me and my three friends are healthier at the end than everybody else, leave us alone. If we're not, then I'll do things your way. And sure enough, at the end of the 10 days, it says in scripture, it said, Daniel then said to the guard and the chief official appointed over Daniel, please test your servant for 10 days and give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with the other young men that eat the food and drink the wine. So he agreed to test them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men that ate the royal food. And so the guard took away their choice food and wine that they were to drink and he gave them vegetables instead. Verse 17, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds in literature and learning. And Daniel could even understand visions and dreams of all kinds. 
Guys, here's the third principle, and this is the one that when we're scared and lonely, it's the hardest one to actually believe. Principle three that Daniel lived by. God sees you, and he rewards obedience. In those moments where you're single and you're scared and you're lonely, in the moments where you show up to big group events and, and you, you're there physically, but mentally and emotionally, you're just gone. Or in those moments where you've got an opportunity to withhold money from God or to give it back to God, or in moments where no one's gonna know that you cheated, no one's gonna know. And yet you make a decision not to cheat and yet you don't get immediately rewarded. In fact, you get a bad grade and then you gotta work even harder. In those moments, it is really scary to believe that God actually sees you and rewards obedience. So as we look at this, principle number three, do you actually think that God sees you and rewards you? I want you to look at something in this story. God blesses Daniel when he's in Babylon, not when he's in Jerusalem. God has the ability to bless you even in the darkest of circumstances. And sometimes he actually waits until you get into those dark circumstances before he blesses you. God doesn't swoop into the story and keep Daniel from the darkest season of his life. He doesn't, and he could have. He could have inspired Daniel and his buddies to you know, hide out in a certain building and then go leave the country under cover of night and, and get out from the Babylonian um, enemy, but he doesn't. He allows him to get kidnapped. He allows the king to be deposed and he allows Daniel and his friends to be horribly treated in a foreign nation that mocks God. But it's here that God does a number of things. Look at what he gives him. He gives him a foreign national that likes him. That was the, the chief official that actually allows Daniel to test him for 10 days. He gives him gifts of knowledge and wisdom. He specifically gifts Daniel with dream interpretation and he supernaturally takes care of their bodies. And then ultimately, when Nebuchadnezzar comes and he tests him, here's what it says in verse 18. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into a service, that was three years, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. And every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. You see, we've got, we've got a very interesting debate happening in our, our nation, really our, our Christian culture right now. You might feel this, and it's the call that some have given the Christian community to pull out of the public education system. Or I've heard it many times that Christians should pull out of government positions. And friends, let me just say that I find this silly. I find it silly. How else is God going to bring people and make a light in a dark place if we never go to the dark places? Now, I understand it's a very difficult issue. I understand that parenting and, and, and the child are in different positions when it comes to being in school, and I, I get it. Trust me, I'm a parent, and I've got kids right now, and we're asking ourselves these questions. But the idea that God can't move and can't do something incredible in really dark environments is just silly. And the idea that we as Christians need to consistently just run away and hide and hope that things get better is a fallacy. It's foolish. You see, something happens, and it's actually not even spoken of in this whole story, but fast forward to the very end of Daniel's time. Fast forward to the end of his life. He dies. He dies an old man. But fast forward all the way to the birth of Jesus. It says that wise men came from the east 
and they were following a star that was in their prophecies. These wise men from the east, probably trained by Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. These four men, Daniel and his buddies, end up gaining the position over all wise men. Just jumping to the end of the story, they become the leaders and the teachers of all the wise men in the region. Ask yourself the question in the story of Jesus, how do these wise men even know the prophecy of the star? How were they aware of it if they weren't Jews and they weren't? These men were trained generations before by those that were trained by Daniel and his friends. What could happen? Who could you influence if you decide right now to be obedient? What kind of difference could you make in this nation? Generations from now, when you are long dead, what kind of schools could you shape? What, what kind of political positions could you shape? Because friends, just recently when Roe v. Wade was overturned, do you wanna know why that was overturned? It was overturned because decades ago, individuals decided to go to school, get advanced degrees, and stay in politics. And then upon arriving in politics, they, they instilled it with God-honoring values. The reason that we've got a better chance at protecting life in this country is because Christians played the long game. It's because we decided to get married and have children and stay present in the dark culture instead of running away and going, oh my gosh, this is really scary. And so this, from the very beginning, is the message of Daniel. The question of Daniel is, how in the world do I endure such a dark environment? And the answer is, you decide from the very beginning what kind of man or woman you're going to be. We will continue asking these questions. And as we look at next week, we're gonna ask the question, what in the world do I do when I'm faced with emergencies? When my life gets unbelievably difficult and it's very sudden and I don't have time to prepare, how do I handle emergencies? And Daniel is gonna walk us through this. I hope you join us next week for Kicking It in Babylon week two. Thanks for tuning in to the Garage Podcast. We hope the message has made you think deeper about faith and will strike up new conversations as you go about your week. If you want to hear more messages like this, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Have a great week.